Ciao, here is a conversation with Logan Kilpatrick. Logan is uh, doing many, many things, but is mainly known for being the Julia language developer community advocate. And so we start talking about exactly that. We talk about the uh, Julia ecosystem, in particular in the context of uh, this week's Julia conference uh, uh, 2022. Uh, from there, we also talk about what happened to the Julia conference uh, organization framework in the years of the pandemic and how this influenced and triggered some changes in the way they're working now. Uh, we also talk about uh, some virtual reality slash metaverse uh, stuff uh, in support of uh, scientific communication and also scientific research. Um, then we dig into the Julia language itself. We argue, uh, we try to outline why should people not uh, into Julia get into Julia and use it. Uh, we also talk about specific packages living in the Julia ecosystem. Uh, then we go into um, the, the differences and potential synergies between uh, uh, the open source uh, perspective and uh, decentralization and uh, the design movement in particular, decentralized science. Um, from there we talk about the financial way in which Julia is working, so the, the financial backend let's say. And, uh, and of course, how uh, the challenge uh, associated to being uh, having the right incentives in a decentralized, less open source uh, perspective. Uh, in fact, we also talk about his involvement with uh, NASA in a project about uh, open science. Really interesting to talk about that. Um, and we also talk about uh, uh, the use of uh, the Julia language, in particular, open source software in medicine, drug development, and uh, from there is involvement, uh, is, is full-time job actually, not involvement, in Path AI. So we talk about really many stuff. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Um, it was uh, one of the most uh, engaging, from my perspective, uh, conversation I recorded. So I hope you enjoy as well. Thanks, Logan, for joining. Um, the first question today is, of course, about the JuliaCon 22, which is upcoming uh, next week, even though, as you said now, there are some warm-up events already. And the question is, one, from Europe, can we get the Replo t-shirt? And two, are you wearing the Julia socks today and during the conference? <laughs> so I only have one pair of the JuliaCon socks, um, so I, I will not be wearing them for the entire duration of the conference. <laughs> I did put them on for... Uh, for our chat today. So I'm wearing the, the Julia socks as well as um, a pair of Julia slippers. So it is the it is the ultimate combination. Nice. Um, and for the for the REPL t-shirt, you, you should be able to get it in Europe. So we, we do ship those pretty much everywhere in the world. I think there's like a very few um, countries that are excluded and those are actually excluded by the shipping provider, not by right. um, us, you know, not being able to, to send them there. So I, I do believe we have tons of folks in Europe. I actually sent a shirt to, to Germany uh, yesterday. So you, you should be able to get the Apple t-shirt in Europe. Okay, great. Yeah, I would say, uh, yeah, I have to definitely these days I have to get one. Uh, but one question <laughs> is maybe also related to what you were saying offline that it's a ton of work for you to organize the conference. And uh, you can see it from outside that there's many volunteering stuff going on, um, a lot of volunteering. And so maybe the question is, how can people, users, uh, uh, developers, uh, curious people revolving around the Julia ecosystem, 
how can they support this movement? I don't know if you want, if you like this word, but. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great question. I think, you know, the, the fortunate part about the Julie ecosystem is that there are so many folks who are willing to, to support the ecosystem. I think, um, you know, one of the, the biggest ways is, you know, if your company is using Julia, uh, sponsor JuliaCon. Like, I think it's an awesome opportunity to get a bunch of exposure for uh, for your company if you all are using Julia. Um, if you're not, if you're doing it as more of a hobbyist, we we have um, sort of ticket donations set up this year where technically JuliaCon is free, but if you want to quote unquote buy a ticket and donate that money to to support uh, the entire ecosystem, the entire Julia ecosystem, you can do that because really JuliaCon is. Um, you know, we were talking offline and I said, you know, I wish we could just pay somebody to do all the work for JuliaCon because it's, again, a tremendous amount of work. But the reality is, is that JuliaCon is, is actually the, the biggest funding mechanism for the Julia ecosystem throughout the entire year. So we, we use the funds that we raise from JuliaCon to support infrastructure, um, you know, pay for compute, pay for Julia Summer of Code uh, contributors, all these different things. Um, and all that money comes from Julia Khan. So we, we really do rely on the sponsorships from all the amazing companies that use Julia, people sort of donating and buying tickets, uh, T-shirt sales, you know, sock sales this year. We just added that this year as well. So um, trying to make sort of ends meet support the ecosystem without, um, you know, without requiring too much money. So it's, again, it's a challenge, but um, yeah, those are some of the ways that, that folks can help out from a financial perspective and happy to talk more uh, broadly as well about just contributing to the ecosystem. Yeah, no, no, my question now was specifically about financial, the, the financial way of supporting through the ecosystem. Um, yeah. yeah, no, uh, it's, you can feel it that's, uh, that the work w is, is done regardless of the payment. So, I mean, th this philosophy that's reflected in the fact that the ticket is free, but then you can support it. And I didn't know that. So thanks for sharing. Uh, it's yeah. really, you can feel it in participating. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm excited now talking because I'm participating for the first time in JuliaCon 2022. I'm presenting a, a small uh, work, so um, I feel part of it. Let me say that. Yeah, no, totally. And I, and I think just just to, to make one more point, I think it's again, you know, not not everyone has to like make a financial contribution for you to be doing something really positive for the ecosystem. Like the other part of JuliaCon, the, the major importance of it, besides just it being a huge funding mechanism for the ecosystem is actually, it's also this huge ability for us to um, continue to expand the ecosystem by getting folks who are doing really cool stuff with Julia, like yourself, um, the platform to actually be able to talk about the cool stuff that they're doing. And that's, you know, if you go back and look year over year, like all the different JuliaCon videos that are out there, like we have thousands of videos now of just case studies, basically, of how people are using Julia. And I think mm -hmm. that stuff is is super important and in, in continue to expand the ecosystem. So I appreciate the, um, even if it's not a financial contribution, just doing the work of um, using Julia and sharing about it at JuliaCon, I think is, is super important. Yeah, and about this, I, uh, I'm not sure if, probably not, but I've seen that this one, the conference is, this here is fully online. Um, I think you did something like that before in the context of the pandemic. Uh, I was curious to understand if you switched during the pandemic or uh, it was just a coincidence, uh, let's say a, a, re a reply to the environment, or was it more of a shift uh, that you wanted to do because the, the community is so worldwide that uh, it was worth uh, jumping out of Boston 
and uh, yeah uh, so yeah i was curious about that because i'm really interested in uh, in uh, how to yeah how to make uh, accessible research accessible to to everyone yeah i think this is a great point and i think you know talking about all the all the travesty and all the bad stuff that happened during the pandemic um i think you know one of the really positive elements and i've i've heard you know so many different folks say this but um, it really sort of improved the accessibility of, of content like what would have been created at JuliaCon. Like, I don't think that, um, you know, obviously hindsight's 2020 and I, who knows what the future would have held if there hadn't been a pandemic, but I don't think we would have had the same sort of virtual conference uh, material created if it wasn't for the pandemic. So I, I really do think that that was the forcing factor. Um, 2020, we really had to scramble and, and change because uh, Julia Khan was actually supposed to be in Lisbon, Portugal in 2020. Um, 2021, we were sort of optimistic we'd be able to have it in Portugal. That didn't plan out. Um, and after 2021, we were like, well, we really don't know what's going to happen. Let's just say for 2022 that we're going to be um, virtual just to play it safe. Now, again, in hindsight, maybe we would have been able to do something in person, but again, at what risk? There's COVID still out there, all that sort of stuff. Um, so for 2023, we're, um, we're hoping to be in person, um, actually back in Boston, just because of the uncertainty. But no, I, I totally agree. I think having a, a virtual component of the conference totally improves accessibility. No, not everyone is gonna be able to travel, um, but I do think that for those who are able to travel, the in-person conference is going to be such a great experience in the future. And like the, the real challenge with online conferences, and I feel this for myself, even as an organizer is like, I, I have all this other stuff going on, like a full-time job and things like that. So it's really hard to really block out like the full time right. if I'm not physically there, like I'm virtually there. So like, I'm like, Oh, well, I'll take a meeting here and there. And like, then it ends up snowballing into, I don't get to spend as much time doing Julia stuff during JuliaCon that I would really want to. Um, and I think that's the case for, for a lot of people. Plus folks are, are just generally burnt out with virtual conferences. So um, I think having something in person next year will be awesome. Um, but we do have, for this year's JuliaCon, we do have in-person meetups around the world actually, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. So if you go on the JuliaCon website, there's a local meetups tab and you can actually see whether or not there's a meetup um, being hosted in your country or in your city or something like that. Um, and there's there's a bunch of them so hopefully that will help sort of bridge this gap mm -hmm. right i see and so the challenge let's say for next year is to maintain the accessibility that was a consequence of the pandemic but also enable back what's in person what, what you get in person it, do you have an idea on how to do that i was curious also about you know this this metaverse hype um i was curious to hear your point on uh, the, the, I think there's a professor from Stanford talking about the, the the fact that the best use case for this VR stuff is going to be education and science. I don't know education. Uh, so do, do you see something like this? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I think the, the reality is we're so far still from any sort of um, viable, usable metaverse. I think the closest thing right now is uh you know gather town which we've used for conferences before and it's mm -hmm. you're just moving around it looks like you're playing game boy um so you can see like the technology is very very far away from um it being high fidelity and and anything close to an in-person conference um but but again i i do think that 
for for us in 2023, we'll probably have something like very similar to what we're doing now, which is um, you know streaming live the actual presentations, and then we'll probably have chat um, or something like that on Discord, mm-hmm. um, and you know people asking questions there, and then we'll probably physically in the room have somebody um, who's sort of acting on behalf of the live audience, and they'll be like, hey, this person has a question, and and sort of asking in person what those virtual questions are or something something of that form i don't think we fleshed out all the details um because we're, we're still trying to pull off uh julia 2022 but um yeah it, it'll be it'll be a challenge i think but it's it's going to be the right thing to do to make sure that the virtual audience can still participate in, in as much um, of the event as possible mm-hmm. right i see so there, there's going to also be a discord for this year as well yeah, there, there is a Discord. So if you're if you're registered for JuliaCon, you should have an email um, in your inbox or maybe your spam folder, as I've seen it be um, a, a couple of times with folks I've chatted with. But you should have a link to a Discord. Um, we, we do that every year now. And yeah, that's where all the sort of conference chat is, is happening. Mm-hmm. Which is separate from the uh, people of Julia, I think. There's a Discord server. Yeah, separate from the humans at Julia Discord. I think humans. they... Yeah, we, we made the decision that it would probably be best to have something that was fresh just so that people weren't confused about, you know, whatever the dynamics that are set up for the Humans of Julia Discord versus, you know, Slack, Zulip, all these other things. So traditionally, we've just made a new Discord every year for the conference specifically, and then we erase it um, afterwards, mm-hmm. which, you know, has its trade-offs, but um, it, it ends up giving folks a, a, a clean slate to actually go in. And I don't, we also don't want to mess with all the stuff that the folks on the Humans at Julia Discord have set up with mm-hmm. respect to all their channels and stuff like that. So it, it seemed like a cleaner solution. Right. And and only the attenders, how do you say, the people presenting at JuliaCon are going to be there or also people that registered as audience? Yeah. So registered attendees are, are welcome to be there. Yeah. So you, it, I would say it's, it's mostly actually for the registered attendees. So for someone who's just attending JuliaCon, that's where you're going to be able to ask questions, talk to speakers, like during, after our presentation is over, that's where you'll ask your question um, because the the videos aren't, with the exception of workshops, um, keynotes and a few other things, none of those things are happening. Um, none of the other talks are happening live. It's all pre-recorded. But yeah, all the question and answering will happen via, via Discord. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Yeah, so probably now it's time for the the main question. So why should one use Julia? Want someone listening now that doesn't know about Julia, um, why should they start looking into it? Uh, in particular, actually, I had a specific question that I over always overlooked, uh, and maybe this relates also to the your full-time job, which is the use of Julia for machine learning. And I mean, I, I touched on that uh, for the uh, scientific machine learning part uh, for dynamical systems. Uh, and the use of neural networks and machine learning techniques for data-driven dynamical systems. But let's say to train a a black box model, uh, which is not physics informed. um, I've seen some good benchmarks comparing it to TensorFlow and PyTorch. So can you maybe say something about that? Yeah, this is is an excellent question. I, I think, you know, the reality and the challenge at the present moment is that TensorFlow and PyTorch have such a massive ecosystem and so much uh, engineering 
dollars flowing into both of those packages from from both Google and from Facebook. So it's it's just really difficult to to pin Julia up against uh, TensorFlow and PyTorch. I think if if you do do if you do make that comparison, um, I think you know most engineers, most folks will end up settling on the fact that hey, it probably makes more sense for me today to use TensorFlow or PyTorch, depending on the use case. Um, I think where Julia is really starting to, and again, to take a step back, I would say that's through the lens of deep learning. If deep learning is what you want to do using PyTorch or TensorFlow, which I guess is what most folks are doing in machine learning these days, um, TensorFlow and PyTorch is, is probably more advanced as far as capabilities go. You can use Flux um, or MLJ.jl. Um, both of those are, I think, viable. But again, you know, Flux is a community of, of people who have come together because they care about deep learning and they care about Julia and they've made something that's that's incredible. Um, but obviously, we don't have millions of dollars uh, being spent to develop the Flux ecosystem. So it's it's just at a different point in its, in its journey. Um, I think, again, going back to what I was going to say, which is I think most of the, the real value that's being created with Julia in the machine learning space is um, with the scientific machine learning space. So Chris Rakakis and, and all the folks in that ecosystem, um, that's where you know sort of the magic is happening in the machine learning perspective. Um, so I, I think if you're doing scientific machine learning, if you're sort of at the intersection of, of machine learning and sort of the physical sciences or some other sort of aspect of science, and you're not just trying to do like train a deep learning model to, you know, predict the value of a house or something like that, whatever the traditional deep learning problems are. Um, I think uh, Julia can be a, a super viable use case in, in some of those situations. And I think, again, going, taking a step back, which was you know the question of why Julia to begin with, I think it really just depends on your use case. Like thinking long and hard about what the tool that you're going to use is part of solving any problem, any engineering problem. So I think it's, you know, am I solving a problem that Julia would be well suited to solve. Mm -hmm. I would say if you're in a scientific domain, likely, like if if you're trying to, you know, model some physical system or model some, uh, you know, the the sort of outbreak of a pandemic, you know, all those types of things are really sort of well suited for Julia's use case. But if you're trying to build, you know, a massive recommender system at the scale of, you know, Google or Netflix, probably PyTorch or something like that is, is going to be a better option for you. Right. Yeah, uh, so let, let me add one point. Let, let's say, let me do, as as you're doing the uh, the devil's advocate match, I'd like to say uh, maybe someone listening uh, should definitely look into Julia if they're working on integrating numerically differential equations. Uh, yeah. The, because of the efficiency and the combination of efficiency and solving the, the fact that they're solving the two language problem. You are solving the two language problems, and um, uh, but beside this, I, I remember reading about the fact that it's kind of like a meta language that allows you to do something. I've never understood that. I I, I yeah. saw that a few years back. Then I it wasn't interesting for me at the time. So c could you explain that capability of which is a low level feature of Julia? I think. Yeah. If I are you saying that um, so. One of the cool features of Julia, and correct me if, if this isn't what you were saying, um, one of the cool features is that the syntax, syntactically, Julia can be really, really similar to um, actual like math that you would see in a paper or somewhere else in the world. Um, so that for a lot of folks who are coming from 
like a scientific domain, they're really familiar with the math, but they're perhaps less familiar with, you know, how do I program this in Python or Julia? So mm -hmm. the fact that Julia syntax is closer to the math means that it's a little bit easier for those folks to make the transition to using Julia or just make the transition to using some computational tool to help them with their research. Um, and the reason that that's sort of enabled is because Julia has um, Unicode support, so you can have mathematical symbols represented um, as variables and, and throughout different types of equations. So you get this really nice sort of visual depiction of this, which is you could have like a paper with some math equation on the left and then the Julia code on the right. And you can look at the two and be like, oh, okay, this actually makes sense to me, um, just visually looking at them. And I think if you sort of add another layer to this and look at the Python code or some other language um, next to the Julia code, it becomes very clear that there's this divide between just from a syntax from a syntax perspective, how you would do these things. And I think, again, for folks in the math domain, it's a little bit easier for them to do math and Julia versus Python or another language because of the, the syntax. Right, right. And about the other point, uh, so how, because how, I've been working on projects in which you have to know C++, Python, and how to interact with each other, and it's kind of a nightmare. And yeah. uh, with Julia, I, I would hope that doing the same kind of solving the same kind of problems would simply lead to development of Julia packages, and that's it. Yeah. Um, how is that possible? Yeah. So I think again, Julia solves this traditional two language problem, which is you know in other languages, if you're in the Python ecosystem, a lot of the times, and I actually think the deep learning and machine learning packages are a great example of this. You know, people think that TensorFlow and PyTorch are Python packages. Mm -hmm. They're not really Python packages. If you look under the hood for TensorFlow and PyTorch, they're really C++, C, Fortran, in some cases, um, machine learning frameworks that they've added this Python wrapper on top of in order to make it so that it's computationally efficient enough to solve the problems that it's trying to solve. And again, you can look at Flux, for example, which is the Julia deep learning package, and it's written in 100% Julia. So you don't have to understand, again, if I'm an engineer using PyTorch or TensorFlow, if I want to take a peek under the hood, I not only have to be a PyTorch or a, a Python expert, I have to be a machine learning expert, and I have to be an expert in C++ or C or whatever the underlying language is that the package is written in. Um, so Julia sort of flips that on its head and says, you know, we can basically use Julia all the way down to the, the low level hardware stack uh, with CUDA or something like that. And we can program in Julia for the entire sort of um, for the entire software stack, which really as a developer makes life that much easier. Um, but you also have the added benefit of uh, Julia having, you know, first class support for interoperability. Um, and if you want to, you know, have some C++ code or some Python code or R or MATLAB or Java um, interact with your Julia code, that works um, pretty much out of the box. So there's not a lot that you need to do to enable that, uh, that functionality. And it's, Again, I think one of the things that has enabled Julia to grow to the point that it's at today is, you know, if if the value proposition for Julia was, hey, you're gonna ha you can use Julia, you can get these speed improvements and these ease of use improvements, um, but you have to rewrite everything you have mm -hmm. from the ground up in Julia. I don't think people would really um, be transitioning like they are, but I think the fact that you can, you know, hey, maybe I want to change some of my code, but I want to leave some of it, and I'll just interrupt this code and make a to use PyCall to call some Python package within my Julia code, the fact that you can do that, mm -hmm. I think has enabled more, 
people to be comfortable saying, hey, I'll give Julia a try for this specific thing, but I don't want to rewrite, you know, 10,000 lines of code uh, that I have in Python. I'll just rewrite this small section and see if I can get the performance improvement that I need. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the outline. Um, I, I have a, uh, off top, let's say, uh, changing topic, a question about, uh, uh, as we said at the beginning, Julia is really focused on open source software development uh, and uh, this shared economy perspective. Uh, also, I've seen that um, uh, the proceedings of this year's conference are uh, under the Creative Commons uh, framework. Um, so I wanted to ask you if you're familiar with the, the recent decentralized science movement and if you think there's a potential dialogue, I mean, they seem like related words. So, because um, the SI seems to build on top of open access. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Do you see, are you familiar with the SI and do you see some potential in integrating the two viewpoints? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I'm, I'm less familiar with, with DSI and more familiar with, with just open science, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure, and, and maybe you can help clarify, like, if there's a line or a boundary between open science versus decentralized science. I don't know if if there is. Yeah, I, I don't know either. I, I have read that DSI came out as a consequence of some unexpected problems with open science, like the mm -hmm. fact that actually uh, I've seen a, a Nature article a few days back uh, about the fact that open science basically unexpectedly lifted up the fees for developing countries to to I don't see I don't know how but to either submit papers or read them and so there was this issue about inequality um, but I think this size probably the the border is between the use of uh, IPFS and blockchain technology uh, to 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 develop a an open science. So it's probably a subset of open science, an open science framework. Yeah, I, I think the reality with with uh, decentralization right now is that in principle, I think there's a lot of people who um, totally are on board with the idea. Like, I think it, it makes total sense for me. One of the biggest things that um, is the is the real impotence for why decentralization should exist is something like the internet. The fact that we all use the internet. It's basically this global storage of all human knowledge. Um, but really there's all these different corporations around the world that control um, everyone's access to the internet. And I think that's one of the things in the world that um, you know should 100% be, be decentralized. I would be happy to pay in some of my money to make sure that I'm um, you know, part of that decentralized web instead of paying you know, Comcast or whoever to give me access to the internet. Um, but the challenge is that and I think this is going to be the same in the open science space um, and the, the DSI space is that blockchain has just a really bad reputation and brand right now that I think people who are serious about open science um, are going to stay away from uh, any of these decentralization things with a 10-foot pole because they don't want to be, you know, marketed and branded and and clumped in with all the NFT, you know, scam stuff that happens in the blockchain space when, again, you know, the underlying fundamental technology is is sound and obviously blockchain is, is a usable um, piece of technology. But I, I think that, again, there, there's so many examples of this and 
there's also a ton of people in the open science space who have gotten burned by um, the the blockchain crypto crowd. And a good example of this is, uh, you know, MyBinder, for example, like the free compute service where you can basically like launch a Jupyter Notebook in your browser and like run it without having to install anything locally. Like MyBinder has to do all of this work um, every year to stop people from trying to use their service to mine crypto. Um, and I right. think that again, all there's all these people in the in the open source, open science space who, um, you know, see things like that happening. And I think it just gives them a bad taste in their mouth about the whole decentralization. But again, in reality, um, it's something that we we should have in the in the open science space, but it's not something that I think um, is going to have a meaningful impact in the next three to five years, maybe beyond that it will. Um, but it's it's just not it's going to take more time. And what about, uh, so you think there, is there something we're left in, li leaving behind from the closed source, I don't know how to call it, the pre-Arnold Schwartz phase, the pre-internet probably? Are we, are we forgetting about something that was good about it? Like, uh, are we underestimating the importance of uh, gatekeeping? I don't know how to say it, if yeah. that's a bad way of saying it. But no, that's that's a hundred percent right. I think the the problem that people always forget about open source is that um, open source is uh, is a privilege. Like the fact that I get to spend my time, you know, contributing to the Julia community is because I am a white male who has the privilege of, you know, I have a job that pays me well, and I have free time to spend and and do all this different stuff. And again, I think the problem with with that ecosystem is. I have this privilege, I have this ability to contribute to open source. And it it also just compounds these things. Like I've had, you know, because I had this privilege and this ability, I've had the ability to, you know, do all this stuff, support the Julia community, which sort of, you know, has helped my career in all these different ways. But again, if I didn't have that privilege to start with, you know, I wouldn't have been able to, to reap those rewards and those benefits. Um, and that's really the problem with, with open source in, in a nutshell. It's, right. The people who are there um, have some form of privilege, and if you don't have the time, the money, the know-how, then you're not able to to reap those rewards. So it's it's really challenging. And again, there's I'm not sure that there's any like good, elegant solutions to the problem. Besides, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's probably a longer topic about mm -hmm. <laughs> how to address that. I think we we have to do what we can, and we do this in the Julie ecosystem as much as possible to you know, be intentional and support diversity and inclusion in every way that we can. But um, that's most of the time still not enough to, to help sort of resolve this problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so this is from your experience as well. I mean, I, I, I read it as a really uh, high level criticism. So it was about the financial incentives, but in your experience as well, since it's open source, you're not paid to develop it and so to, to arrive at having the time the resources to do that you have to have some kind of privilege that's enabling you a hundred percent and again once you the, the the flip side of this is again it's it's that reinforcement mechanism as well like okay so now you know you had the privilege to write some julia package that's now fundamental and used across the ecosystem and now when you go to you know apply to be a professor a tenured professor or for some job they're like oh look at this you have this 
you know, foundational package in the Julia ecosystem, we're going to think favorably of you in this job process versus someone else who doesn't have that open source experience because they had less privilege and they had something else going on in their life. Um, so it's it's the it's the reinforcement mechanism that I think obviously there needs to be some incentive for people to do free labor, which is what open source is in a lot of cases. Um, but it's yeah, it's what are the repercussions and what is the long tail impact of people doing that free labor? And I think for the people doing it, it can oftentimes be really beneficial. Like I'm I'm super grateful that I have the ability to do this work, but I think just being reminded of the fact that not everyone does and um, it's definitely a privilege to be able to do it. Right, yeah. Can, can, can we keep, if you don't mind, can we pick, keep trying to talk about this? Because for example, sure. let, let's see, uh, uh, let's say uh, at least let's say let's let's recognize to the open uh, source movement that then the code is open source and so even if you didn't have the time to develop it because you're not as lucky as someone else you can use it uh, yeah but can you do more so can can julia now i'm talking to julia because talk to you but can open access uh, bring back pay developers pay, pay creators pay creative people and so i'm going back to this size sorry but nfts are a ape how's it called the api club maybe it's a as a bad thing that's happening but maybe there yeah. are many artists creators that were not able to get their their works out there because of i don't know gatekeeping uh, i don't know to to be a painter you needed to be in the circle of guys and maybe with OpenSea you just drop an NFT collection and if it's valuable you get money so could both open source code development and science make use of something like that is there a solution do you see a solution for there's a i have met a a, a a kid i mean i call him a kid he's a i think a first year bachelor student from china which developed this super cool julia library for fractional calculus and i think it's not getting money for it i mean he's doing a great job uh, yeah. how can we pay him i mean we uh, how can he get money for that yeah, I, I think the the again this goes back to you know there's all this benefit and incentive in the open source community and there's all this good that comes from it. But I think that one of the biggest challenges is that the people who have money in the open source ecosystem are very keen on not letting go of that money. Like again, the you know who, who's reaping the rewards and the benefits of you know all the all this stuff that happens in the Julie ecosystem. It's you know, all of these Fortune 500 companies, you know, it's, you know, Apple, it's Google, it's Facebook, it's, you know, Tesla, people doing research, all these different companies, same thing for any other open source ecosystem and community. But you, you see all the, all this usage flowing into these companies, you know, I don't see any money flowing back from, from any of those companies that I just mentioned. I'm sure some of them are doing, you know, some development of Julia in some capacity, but, you know, they're not making a direct financial contribution back into the ecosystem. And I think that's the only way that the, that it works financially is to have companies show up, pay their fair share. Um, and, and I don't think that the problem is the open source ecosystem isn't set up to do that like i think companies are doing it now from a branding perspective in a lot of sense i think they're they're doing it because mm -hmm. it looks good i think there's also sort of a parallel movement to 
sort of the marketing aspect of, of mm -hmm. contributing open source, which is from a security standpoint, I think companies are realizing, hey, we're sort of building our entire company on these tools and, and services provided by the open source community. Maybe it would make sense for us to invest in them because if something goes wrong, we're basically screwed and we need to have some sort of levers to be able to fix security issues. Um, so I think that's that's a really big, important movement. But yeah, I, I hope that there'll be other funding mechanisms as well in the future. I think whether or not it's DeFi stuff, potentially, um, I think GitHub sponsors is a huge, mm -hmm. uh, has been a really important sort of step in this direction for the ecosystem. Ju the Julia committee obviously benefits from that. Um, we have like close to, to 200 people sponsoring us on um, on GitHub, but and how does again, it work? The sponsor is it a, a monthly fee or something like that, or exactly pay like pay a, a monthly. Fee. Yeah, but and and the cool part too is, and I think GitHub was has been smart about this, which is you know if you open an issue or you comment on something or a pull request, it actually shows up that you're a sponsor. So there's there's that added sort of badge that you're you're truly not just a contributor, but you're also a sponsor of this project, and and hopefully. Um, you know, I, I don't know if your ideas are heard louder or something like that, but um, hopefully that that sort of has some benefit to you as as the person who's paying the project every month. But even with 200 people sponsoring us every month, it's um, you know obviously those people are are very kind and generous, but it's it's a drop in the bucket as far as um, how much money is out there. And you know we have 200 people sponsoring us, but there's you know a hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, however many Julia developers out there. So it's a very, very, very small percentage of people who are making that contribution. Um, so it's it's interesting to think about it in that context. Right. Right. I'll, I'll keep these in mind. Um, and about this, I guess uh, this is uh, I, I don't remember. I think I've seen it in the Judicon page. The Num Focus. Uh, yeah. It was one of the sponsors. I've seen your kind of related to them. Um, personally, I've seen maybe in your Twitter handles. There's. There's something about them, uh, but yeah. Anyhow, um, I was curious about uh, as their sponsor, uh, how the, the the financial part of Julia. How did you kick off? Basically, I don't know when you started getting involved, but how did this thing started rolling? Yeah, so I I got involved in the Julia ecosystem. I think I started using Julia first uh, back in 2017, 2018. Um, I got more involved. I got officially involved in the project. Um, as the community manager at the beginning of 2020, spent a little over two years as the community manager. And then my title sort of changed to developer community advocate, more so focused on, again, I, the reality was I wasn't sort of managing the community. I was advocating on behalf of the community. I was supporting the community. So the, the title change makes a lot of sense. Um, but to, to go back to what NumFocus is, so um, yeah, NumFocus is, the Julia Project's fiscal sponsor. And I think the the terminologies need to change because this makes it seem like NumFocus just has a big pile of cash and they're like, here, Julia Project, here's all this money. We're gonna fiscally sponsor you. That's not how it works. Um, so I'm on the, the board of directors of, of NumFocus, which is a 501c3 nonprofit in the US. Um, and NumFocus supports a ton of open source projects. Um, and, and how it does that is by providing the legal and financial infrastructure for uh, projects like Julia, Jupyter, Pandas, NumPy, SciPy, Scikit-Learn, all these other um, op open source projects, SciML and the Julia ecosystem, Flux. Um, it provides the legal and financial infrastructure for 
these projects to accept donations, receive grants, all this other stuff related to financial stuff, um, as well as the, the legal infrastructure to pay for independent contractors, pay for bug bounties, pay for development. So really focus on the legal and financial infrastructure of the project. And then there's all these other benefits as well, like um, support for Google Summer of Code, um, there's small development grants that NumPocus gives to projects um, every, I think, three times a year, all this other stuff um, that NumFocus does. But truly, the, the sort of main benefit is that we, as the Julia Project, can legally accept donations from people. We can take in sponsor dollars during JuliaCon, and, and all that money is managed and handled by NumFocus, um, and they right. take a fee for doing all this for us. But truly, for us, it's a great benefit because... I don't need to do the Julia taxes every year. I don't need to worry about, you know, the legal ramifications of us taking money from some company or paying an independent contractor in India or something like that. Like we don't have to deal with any of that. It's all handled by NumFocus, which is really, really nice. Um, and we can really focus on the things that we're all excited about and none of the challenges. Um, so that's, that's the sort of main piece. And I think the, the way that Julia, the Julia project brings in money again is we, we talked before about Julia Khan is, is one of the main funding mechanisms um, for, for Julia as a, as an ecosystem. Um, so that money comes in uh, usually from sponsors, from ticket sales, t-shirts, all that stuff. Um, and then we have some of those other things that run throughout the year. We sell t-shirts throughout the year, things like that. Um, sponsors on GitHub, uh, but really Julia Khan is, is sort of the, the big, the big, fish of the year if you right right okay as a legal uh, is a legal entity i mean yeah so we're a legal entity um that's part of num focus so we don't have like a right now we don't have a separate foundation or anything like that i think um it's something to it's something we've thought about for the future and and i've had a bunch of conversations but like rust for example python a bunch of these other languages have like a their own foundation but for us NumFocus provides so much value and mm -hmm. we don't have to deal with all that, like the stuff that basically nobody wants to do. Um, so it's really nice that we have NumFocus to help support us in that way. Right, right. I see. And besides this, uh, let's see how you mentioned, you, you see maybe this in the future. What do you see in the next five years, 10 years for Julia? Five years, let's say. 10 is too much probably. Yeah, from a... I think there's a lot of things happening in the Julia ecosystem that aren't sort of formalized right now. Like I think even just from a from a governance perspective, I think Julia is still um, as an ecosystem very immature. Like if you start to look more at you know more bigger open source project, there's just a lot more mechanisms in place as far as you know uh, how do we make decisions about how things how certain things happen. I think. We, we've sort of benefited in the Julie ecosystem from having a small ecosystem so we can be quick and nimble. But I think mm -hmm. as the ecosystem continues to expand over the next five years, I think we'll get more formal with things. Hopefully we'll, you know, have more folks working in a full-time capacity. Um, I, I would love to see, you know, some sort of um, corporate sponsorship on a yearly basis mm -hmm. program coming out. It's something that I've thought about in the last year um, just seeing how well that works for other open source projects like the Django project, for example, 
um, you know, and, and others have like yearly corporate sponsors. And I think that would be a great way for us to, again, continue to be uh, fiscally solvent as an open source project. So I think it makes sense to do that. Um, and again, adoption will continue to grow. I think all the technical stuff will continue to get better. Um, without a doubt, more more people will be using it because hopefully the rough edges will be solved. And mm -hmm. yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of exciting things. For me, it's it's really sort of the maturing of the ecosystem that I'm excited to see. I think there's just so many so many things that we don't have right now that hopefully we will in the future. And uh, whether it's five or ten years, I think there's it's going to happen. It's just a question of um, how implementation wise, like missing technical solutions it, missing technical solutions but also just like things in the community that we need to grow sustainably long term i think hopefully in the next five years we'll have figured a lot of those out um like small things like you know we use slack right now um to do a lot of communication i think long term we need to be off of slack because it's it's just not the right tool for our open source project to continue to grow into the future. Right. Can I ask what do you envision as an alternative? Uh, it could be Discord. It could be Zulip. Um, it could be something else. I, I really, honestly, I don't. I don't care at this point as long as it's not Slack. I'm. I'm happy. Um, it, it just. Yeah. Something where the ideally, where people won't ask technical questions. Um, hopefully, we can get people onto discourse or Stack Overflow um, instead of asking technical questions on Zulip and um, Slack. I, I just think that that's such a shame. The question is literally disintegrated and, and it goes away. And I think people make the argument that, well, for folks who aren't comfortable asking the question publicly, you know, the reality is you can make a pseudo-anonymous Stack Overflow account and go and ask a question. No one's going to stop you from doing that. Um, so if you're not comfortable putting your name on your question, that's totally fine and that's fair. Um, but I, I don't think that the right solution is to allow people to mm -hmm. ask questions that just then get evaporated um, on Slack because we don't pay for premium Slack. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the idea would be to, to, to get uh, Discord or uh, Zulek. I didn't know that one. Uh, yeah, Zulip is an open source um, chat platform and yeah, Discord is not open source. It's obviously a for-profit company, but um, I think that they've done a nice job of building community features. And I think the interface is actually a little bit better than Zulip. Um, I think Zulip needs, needs more user interface design help um, than Discord does. Okay, and in parallel, have this uh, reproducib reproducible technical part on, uh, on GitHub. And uh, also about maybe a... Uh, is GitHub for profit? So is GitHub a problem? Let's say I'm now in this perspective challenging everything also about myself. Yeah. Is GitHub a good place? I mean, I don't know. It, it It's a challenge. Like I think re like one of the biggest things and I, I'm, um, you know, doing all this stuff with open science now and thinking about open science and, you know, one of the folks who's on this open science advisory panel at NASA with me made a bunch of comments about um, you know, how are we 
looking at and addressing vendor lock-in. Like basically the, the, the reality is so much of the open source community is tied into GitHub. And thank God the folks at GitHub have been very kind and generous and are pro open source. But hey, you know what? Tomorrow they get a new CEO and decide, you know, we don't really care about open source. We're an enterprise company. We want to make money that way. And they stop supporting the open source ecosystem. You know, that could be a huge catastrophic blow to the open source ecosystem because so much of what we do is is based on GitHub. Um, I think, again, you know, the argument for GitLab is that some of their stuff is open source and you can see the code. You know, I'm not really sure that that makes it any better. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like a little bit better, uh, but the reality is it's the same sort of challenge. Again, I could see the, the Git infrastructure being something that is a candidate for decentralization. I think that would make sense to me to have some sort of decentralized version of GitHub um, validated on the blockchain. But again, I think people are far away from that being the reality today. Um, yeah, I can again, mention maybe here there's a there's a, a VSI group called Radical that I have no idea what the details are, but they're integrating Git with uh, Ethereum. I, I don't know the details. Nice. Uh, yeah. So there's okay. some soft, but it, I think it's only from the perspective of the developer. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah. So, so it makes sense. But is it a problem of the fact that the servers are of a company? So is is the server the problem? Yeah, I I, I don't think it's a problem right now. Like I I know so many folks who work at GitHub who yeah, yeah, who no, have potential. such great. In yeah, who have such great intentions. And I think they're, they're doing really like, I, I don't, I think the reality is open source wouldn't be where it is today without GitHub. Like that's a fact, like they've, they've made open source for better or for worse. Like the way that it is today um, is because of all the work that the folks at GitHub did over the last 10 years to make the ecosystem more accessible than it was previously. So I think they, you know, they should get their, their, um, acknowledgement and their award when when the time comes but again from from a long-term perspective do you want to have all the open source ecosystem tied up in in github probably not i think the folks at github are probably aware of this um and i actually could see them you know potentially doing some of the decentralization themselves over the next five years as they start to think about their own product though maybe they'll just end up being you know sort of the the visual interface um, into this decentralized uh, storage of code, but really they um, that interface could just be swapped out with some other interface and then you're totally good and, and fine. Um, so potentially that will end up being the way it right. looks. Right. Yeah, I've never thought about talking with, so talking with GitHub, I've never thought about considering as a, as a, as a peer. Uh, so yeah, this is opening up some some ideas um yeah and so uh, once again julia is living on github yeah we the, the source code lives on github i think there's mirrors on gitlab maybe um there's some folks who are doing development on on gitlab but the the code is and the active development for most of the julia ecosystem i would say probably like 95 percent um is happening on github right now right And this, you mentioned that this this project on the open science movement, uh, uh, transform to open science tops. Yeah. This this project uh, by NASA. Uh, you're part of the of some committee. Sorry for not. You mentioned it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm lucky enough to be on the the 
Transformed Open Science TOPS is the acronym, um, NASA Community Advisory Panel. Um, so really just helping support NASA as an organization as they make the transition to um, open science principles um, and also helping um, NASA uh, sort of work in the community in the right ways to make sure that they're using their influence to um, to promote open science. And I think from from NASA's perspective, it, it makes perfect sense. Like it's a, uh, you know, part of the US government sort of set out to make science and information more accessible and expand all the sort of scientific stuff that's happening in the US. And so for it to be a leader in open science makes perfect sense. And I think there's a ton of work that's happening there um, uh, with TOPS. I think part of it is developing uh, curriculum to actually teach scientists what does it mean to do open science? What are the best practices? Um, so all that work is ongoing at the moment, which is really exciting. Um, 2023 is going to be the year of open science, um, according to NASA. Um, so hopefully there'll be some there'll be some awesome programming happening in that sense. There'll be tons of events, um, and and really NASA's made a meaningful financial commitment, um, 40 million dollars over the next five years to actually help push this forward, which I think is awesome. Um, so hopefully, you know, they're hoping to be the catalyst for a lot of this change happening in the in the open science space. And um, it's going to be it's going to be really exciting to see what happens. Right. Interesting. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I'm asking this and, and sorry for asking so late, but I'm an aerospace engineer myself and I've worked for the European Space Agency. And so this is, how do you say, cutting close to the bone in a good way. Uh, <laughs> uh, so. Um, uh, yeah, if, if you could say more about uh, your involvement and in particular, if there's some relation with Julia, uh, I was also thinking about the potential of using Julia for orbital mechanics. Yeah, solutions. so I actually, my, my Julia journey started at NASA. Um, so I, my, my first um, internship was, was working at NASA um, using Ju the team that, that's how I learned Julia. The team that I joined at NASA just happened to be using Julia to do the the planning and development of um, a piece of software that helps uh, plot out and plan uh, lunar traverses in, in this case, but it works on traverses on, on any celestial body with any type of uh, rover or spacecraft. Um, so we actually built this, this framework using POMDPs and MDPs to actually um, simulate the traverse for the upcoming uh, NASA Lunar Viper mission um, in 2024. Um, so the the traverse and the path that the rover is actually going to take was plotted um, and and sort of calculated and built using the software that I worked on, written in Julia um, while I was while I was at NASA. So super exciting! I think when, when that mission launches, um, I'll I'll be in Florida. Uh, to see the to see the space launch, which will be really exciting. Um, but yeah, I, I think there there are a ton of folks across NASA who are using Julia because I think the problems that folks are solving at NASA is perfectly in line with um, with with Julia. And I think there's a bunch of different groups. I think um, in my case, the the folks that I was working with were part of the Intelligent Systems Group. Um, at NASA Ames in Mountain View, California. So mm -hmm. a lot of them had ties, like my my mentor, for example, um, he did his PhD at Stanford um, and was part of the intelligence system labs at Stanford and um, run by a guy named Michael Kirkenderfer, who um, 
you know, has done all this amazing work in, in the Julia ecosystem, but also broadly in the decision-making under uncertainty ecosystem mm -hmm. um, and actually built, you know, like the, um, the FAA's uh, collision avoidance system for planes um, is actually built in Julia. Um, and that was one of the initial use cases for them building um, POMDPs.jl, MDPs.jl, and then all this peripheral ecosystem for MDPs and POMDPs. Um, using was, julia which year was this so i i started using i joined this team i think at right at the beginning part of uh of 2018. okay okay yeah and so and, and, I, and the current uh, the current dialogue with nasa is julia involved or are you involved as a open science uh, expert? yeah so i, I I'm involved in, in my capacity, both in the Julia ecosystem, but also from a, from a NumFocus perspective as well. So NumFocus is sort of one step broader than the Julia specific ecosystem. But um, again, I think it's this, this initiative is, is more broadly about open science and less about like the specific tools in which we're using to do open science. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, you know, there's not a lot of conversations about Julia specifically, but I think broadly at NASA, there's a bunch of folks that I've talked to um, who are who are using Julia, which is really exciting, and um, definitely folks who broad broader than NASA um, are using Julia to do space stuff. Like there's a bunch of really great um, JuliaCon talks actually about how folks are using Julia for for space stuff. So it's it's been super exciting to see. Mm -hmm. Right, and so this is even more general than software development, let's say. Uh, it's yeah, science. totally. Um, because it's about like the open access to like data and, and stuff like that. So it's not about, it's not, I think open source programming is one sort of facet of this, but it's open access to data. It's open access to papers and all this other stuff. So it's, it's much broader than, um, than, than just open source uh, software. Right. Great. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. As I told you, I think I wrote you, uh, I'd like to, to, to copy NASA and uh, and let ESA copy NASA at least or contribute to the ecosystem in a way that pushes ESA to to follow this this lead in the open science uh, in aerospace because um, I don't know maybe I, I'd also like to ask you a final question about uh, how the there's so much overlap between Julia and uh, the data-driven perspective of uh, healthcare and medicine and drug development and all these topics that you're working on. Um, and so to go back to the initial thought is, um, I, I see a lot of potential of uh, pushing forward open science in aerospace. There are so many wasted resources in not doing that, that I've seen. And so, yeah, this is not a question, but the question is, uh, um, do you see the same in your field in the data-driven uh, medicine? And also the question, the initial question I had was, uh, why so many applications in medicine uh, for Julia? Is this a coincidence or? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think so. My full-time job right now, I work at a company called Path AI, which is using uh, machine learning and deep learning to um, improve uh, patient outcomes with with AI-powered pathology is the, is the sort of mission statement. Um, and what that actually means is, uh, basically using machine learning, deep learning to help support pathologists who are making um, cancer diagnoses instead of them just 
looking under a microscope and making the, the cancer diagnosis, they have this support from machine learning models, deep learning models to improve their ability to make cancer patient diagnoses. And again, throughout clinical trials, through actual diagnoses in a lab, um, it's, it's really exciting. I think this is a, it's a super cool use case. We're, we're not using Julia to do that. Um, and, and part of the reason why is because um, much of the work that we're doing is uh, traditional deep learning. So it's not, um, it's not sort of pharmacology. Um, it's not using sort of that sort of piece of it. Um, whereas like, for example, uh, Puma's AI, which is sort of built from the ground up on Julia and a bunch of folks in the Julia ecosystem, like Chris Rakakis and others, um, are involved in that company. That's really where they're sort of leveraging Julia. And it's less, it's less about um, deep learning in that sense. And it's more about you know, using differential equations and all the other cool, fancy math stuff that, uh, that Chris and those folks do um, to, to find solutions. And I think the reason that you see Julia being used so much for this work is because the other solutions are just not viable in in today's environment like i know for example um pfizer uh which is obviously so popular now because of all the COVID stuff and vaccines but they're they're a user of julia moderna one of the keynote speakers for juliacom this year is the head of um, some division at moderna and i forget exactly which one but um so these folks are using julia because it fundamentally helps them solve their problems significantly faster. Like I think in the case study for Pfizer, um, or it was Pfizer, Moderna, I forget, it was 175x speed up in their simulation. So you take something that was taking a day or two to run a full simulation for some drug, and you bring that down to a few minutes um, or, or 30 seconds or something like that. And you can see the the innovation that can happen. Um, now, all of a sudden, you can, you know, try out thousands and thousands and thousands of different combinations for some of these drugs where you were previously limited by the computational resources that you had. Um, so it, it just makes a ton of sense in the space because of how much computational resources um, are required to do some of these, um, some of these calculations. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm just looking the, 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 the keynote speaker is the head of the clinical pharmacology and pharmacometrics yeah. at Moderna. Wow, uh, it'll yeah, be awesome. I'm mean, excited. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Uh, and it's actually humbling to think uh, my speech at uh, JuliaCon is going to be about yeah, Julia is efficient, so we can make cool animations. Well, this guy is yeah, it's efficient, so we can save the humanity. You know. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, everyone's playing their part in it. I think it's uh, yeah, it's it's important. Yeah, you mean, I mean, uh, one shows that you can make cool figures and then the guy can, that can save the world uh, says, uh, oh, I can do something like, I can <laughs> I can copy it in some sense. Uh, so yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, really interesting. And uh, are you aware of the work conducted? I've seen an, an interesting sponsor, which is kind of in between Path AI and Pumas. I mean, in between in my mind, in the sense that they could be potentially using this um, uh, scientific machine learning and sorry, I don't remember the name, but it's about uh, the the time series analysis of the brain. So, EEG. Oh yeah, yeah, beacon biosignals. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so I was 
I was fortunate enough to work with those folks for a, a short amount of time back in 2020. Um, yeah, uh, created by Jared Revols and um, and Jake Jacob. I forget Jacob's last name, but uh, Jared used to work as a um, as a research scientist at the Julia Lab, doing a bunch of Julia stuff. So he's been a longtime contributor to the Julia ecosystem, and um, and Jacob was um, a MD, PhD student at Harvard and MIT and um, did a bunch of awesome stuff. So he's he's an incredible um, medical mind, if you will. And, and Jared's really the, I think Jared's the CTO and did a bunch of Julia stuff. Um, but yeah, they're, they're using, and, and I don't know if I have a full grasp today on the work that they're doing. I know they're using um, Julia and machine learning to help improve the, the EKG uh, process. I think the way that it was originally described to me is, um, if you go into the hospital and you need an EKG run like on your brain to like make sure that you're in a, a good physical condition, it's like this really archaic process. Like the person who does it at the hospital is like not always there. Um, they're like, you might go in they're like, yeah, the person's not going to be here till tomorrow morning. So you have to wait until the next day or something like that. Um, so really this old analog archaic process. And um, I actually think Beacon... Um, it, at least at the time that I was involved and in, in talking with them more actively, um, they actually were building um, some small piece of physical hardware to accompany the software platform that they were building, which I think um, is in the clinical trial space. Um, and then the physical piece of hardware would you know, go onto your head and you'd be able to um, sort of do these EKGs without, without being um, physically in the hospital or, or something to that. Okay. So really... Yeah, really interesting work. I think they'll have us potentially a, a few videos maybe coming out at, at JuliaCon. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, I think an interesting company to keep an eye on. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and let me close with this one, which is a, I think it's an annoying question, but mention the three best Julia packages. <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, the coolest, I don't know, the one that you said, this is a cool uh, application I didn't expect. Yeah. So the the first one that I'll start with is um, I think it's called iterm.jl, which is just a uh, visual. It's like a it's a package that hooks into the Julia REPL and basically gives you the ability to do all this fancy stuff in the REPL that you normally or in the terminal session that you normally wouldn't be able to do. Um, so it's it's a bunch of like visual things like. I don't know if it's like progress bars and all this other stuff. You can basically design into your own Julia package um, all of this functionality in the REPL to make it more interactive and more visual. And um, it seems really, really cool. So I, I haven't played around too much, but I, I follow the, and I forget the guy's name who is making it, but I follow him on Twitter and I always see um, the stuff that he's working on. So I think it's iTerm. The iTerm. Iterm, T-E-R-M dot J-L um, is, is the package. So that, that one looks really cool. Um, lots of cool visualizations and, and stuff on Twitter happening with that. Um, another one is, and I, I just think Flux is really cool because I, I like deep learning. Um, so Flux is, is a big one. I think there's so much um, potential with Flux and so much happening in that ecosystem. So I'm really excited about you know, what the next three years look like for, for that package and for that ecosystem. Um, and then let's see, the third one. Hmm. 
I think um, I'll, I'll probably say dataframes.jl. And the reason I think dataframes is obviously a, such a fundamental package in the Julie ecosystem. But I also think that uh, Bilgamil um, and the other folks who, who help work on dataframes have done such an incredible job and made such an important contribution to the ecosystem, um, not only just with dataframes, but Bilgamil, for example, um, you know, is has answered the most questions out of anybody um, in, on Stack Overflow in the entire ecosystem. So he's, you know, donated a tremendous amount of his time to help people learn Julia and with their problems and questions. And I think him and and um, I, I'm going to butcher the name, but it's like Prezemensky or something like that, um, which is basically his partner in crime. Um, those two are are, and, and I think they won the Julia Community Award last year. Um, because of this such important work that they're doing. So I think huge shout out to them. And, and there's obviously so many other folks in the Julie ecosystem who are doing such great work. Um, it's hard to. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I knew it was an annoying question for this, but <laughs> thank you for, yeah. for, for being able to, to how do you say, compensate it. Um, yeah, no, thanks a lot for, for the work you're doing. Uh, thank you for the, the organization of the Judicon. Yeah, I think I'll, I just want to make the quick disclaimer that there, there's a huge organizing committee for Julia Khan. So I'm obviously doing some of the work, but uh, Valentin and, and Avik are the, the chairs for Julia Khan and, and they're really leading things. And we have uh, Katie and, and Michael Herbst um, leading the program this year, which is a tremendous amount of work. Very, very difficult job. Um, and they've done an, an awesome um, done an awesome job leading that uh, that part of, of Julia Khan. And there's a bunch of other folks helping out with tons of other stuff across the across the entire um, conference. So yeah, huge shout out to all those folks and, and Julia Khan wouldn't be would not be possible without people donating so much of their time and, and volunteering and, and really making it work. So it's, um, it's such an important community initiative. Yeah. Okay, thank you for clarifying. And yeah, again, thank you. Sorry, you're here. So I have to thank you. But yeah, thank you for <laughs> your time and bring in the voice of all the people that contributed to that. And uh, yeah, I look forward to the conference. Uh, I, I recommend people listening to to join if uh, they see this before the conference to go back to all the recordings. Everything is available, so uh, absolutely worth spending time learning not only the language but things through the language. Not sure if you want to add yeah. something, but totally <laughs> great. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Mateo. Thanks for having me. I think this was a, a ton of fun. And again, if folks have questions about Julia or things that I can help out with, always feel free to, to get in touch with me online. Great. Thank you.